And we are back. Hello, uh, Literary Hangover listeners, particularly the patrons who will get this a little bit early. Thanks for uh, continuing to hook me up as I uh, continue what has sort of developed into a a semi-hiatus as I uh, try to juggle majority report and left reckoning duties along with a pretty a pretty extreme reading list i've been tasking myself for this show i must confess that we've we basically covered you know we're in william bird 1712 we're going to be talking about we basically covered all of the 17th century and i had not read or really read Christopher Hill, Marxist historian, one of the uh, British Marxist historians covered by Harvey K. in his forthcoming reissue, British Marxist historians, the British Marxist historians. I think you'll hear me maybe in the Bradstreet episode and in a number of other ones complaining about not really having a total grasp of the ins and outs of the English Civil War. The best color commentary I got from it prior to Hill was in the work of Philippa Gregory. But Hill really lays it out. Here's a section I want to start uh, reading with because we'll get very early on. Bird has some uh, domestic politics issues with the Quakers who don't want to uh, be involved with the Tuscarora War. Tuscarora War, which I won't get into too much more this episode. Check back the last one um, and the sources particularly if you want to follow that story up a little bit more, but uh, it becomes more of a Carolina thing. Uh, Bird gets what he wants. We'll we'll talk a little bit more. Uh, we'll touch on it a little bit more, but um, only in, in the insofar as it, it's in William Bird's uh, life. But there's this uh, this very interesting bit from uh, Christopher Hill, The World Turned Upside Down. Hill writes this. I'll read up. The revolt within the revolution, which is my subject, took many forms, some better known than others. Groups like the Levelers, Diggers, and Fifth Monarchists offered new political solutions, and in the case of the Diggers, new economic solutions too. The various sects... Baptists, Quakers, Muggletonians offer new religious solutions. Other groups ask skeptical questions about all the institutions and beliefs of their society. Seekers, ranters, and diggers, too. Indeed, it is perhaps misleading to differentiate too sharply between politics, religion, and general skepticism. We know as a result of hindsight that some groups, Baptist Quakers, will survive as a religious set. Uh, as religious sets, and that most of the others will disappear. It's Baptists and Quakers, of course, because they uh, really get not not only because of but maybe as a symptom of this success that the others don't have get a firm firm foothold in America um, and you know it's more the more they're the more bourgeois elements as opposed to like the ranters and and uh, levelers uh, who uh, we discussed this a little bit in the um, recent George Orwell episode of Left Reckoning David Griscom and I. Orwell's relationship with communists and leftists um, of all 
gradations at that time is similar to how you should think of Milton in the sense that he was conversant with all these folks. So when he comes out and says something quite radical, uh, like, uh, you know, we did the right thing by cutting off the king's head, it's because he's as part of this milieu. And be, the way he's able to not end up with his own head cut off or hung after that is uh, in large part because he was connected to more and more powerful people than some of the other less fortunate folks. We know as a result of hindsight that some groups, Baptists, Quakers, will survive as religious sects, and that most of the others will disappear. In consequence, we unconsciously tend to impose two clear outlines on the early history of the English sects, to read back later beliefs into the 1640s and 50s. One of the aims of this book will be to suggest that in the period... In this period, things were much more blurred. From, say, 1645 to 1653, there was a great overturning, questioning the value of everything in England. And men moved easily from one critical group to another. And a Quaker of the early 1650s had far more in common with a leveler, a digger, or a ranter than with a modern member of the Society of Friends. So basically, Quakers uh, really like skeptical of the Trinity, whereas you get and a little bit more skeptical, you know, I mean, this is the, this is the Protestants, right? They're Protestant um, papal authority. And they end up Protestant protesting their own forms of authority too. I wanted to finish this because when we get to Daniel Boone, Daniel Boone comes from Quakers. And his father, in fact, gets kicked out of the church or uh, the Quaker Society of Friends because he won't stop his kids from marrying outside the church. We get here, January 5th, 1712, and we're not going to go too in-depth. A lot of this stuff is, you know, there's um, rewards for runaway slaves, uh, slave purchases, loading up the sloop, that sort of stuff, the normal William Byrd stuff, meeting with sea captains to negotiate prices for carriage um, to take his crap. But... And this is, and we don't have a full year of this. We only have to like September. So it was October 4th of last year, 1711, that he had to find Quakers because they did not turn out for military service. Uh, he made them a nice speech, as it says in the uh, uh, intro to this first diary here. He was nice to the Quakers in that instance. January 5th here. Uh, I'll read more of this one just to get us back into the uh, flow. I rose about seven o'clock and read nothing because Tom Turpin was here. He came with 30 hogs from the falls. He told me all was well above. I said my prayers and ate boiled milk for breakfast. I danced my dance. Remember, he liked to dance with calisthenics. Uh, about nine o'clock came Major Harrison and the captain of the Pelican. I gave them a bottle of sack, which is a kind of a uh, favorite type of alcohol. Um, then we played at billiards and I won seven shillings and sixpence at one o'clock. We went to dinner again, like, you know, captain playing, playing pool with a sea captain. Um, and we'll get into what these sea captains are doing. Some, you know, not just taking tobacco around, some bringing slaves. And uh, actually we'll get to that in a little bit here after we finish this section. Uh, getting to Micaiah Perry, again, birds financier, um, and, sort of uh, procurer of high status positions like the governor's council places him there as soon as he gets to virginia 
Um, in the afternoon, we were merry and made the Quaker captain drink the queen's health on his knees. So, of course, Quakers were very anti-idolatry to the point of, um, and maybe that's idolatry is not the word, but we're not going to worship monarch. There's carve-outs for a while um, to let the Quakers get by with that, but uh, the policy was changing. I mentioned Micaiah Perry. I read a very interesting book called Freedom's Debt by William A. Pettigrew. The Royal African Company and the Politics of the Atlantic Slave Trade, 1672-1752. Basically, it's the story of uh, a need for reform of the slave trade, a slave monopoly that England had, and opening it up to other traders. So this was not on you know, the moral grounds that we shouldn't be uh, enslaving west africans we should um what instead we should do is get open that up to you know the type of captains that william bird plays pool with on a daily basis I have this section here from uh, freedom's debt that explains uh who and you'll hear perry himself was uh advocating for this by 1698, mainland American interests began to assert their opposition to the African Company in Parliament, perhaps confident in their ability to manage black majorities. On May 24, 1698, the bill to partially deregulate the Africa trade reached the House of Lords. During the next several days, the first colonial interests to designate themselves as planters as well as merchants petitioned the House of Lords for the chance to appear in person to discuss the bill. These petitions came from the planters of Virginia and Maryland and the merchants trading thereunto, May 25th, and the planters and merchants concerned in the island of Jamaica, in behalf of themselves and others the planters in the said island, May 26th. On May 27th, a petition in support of the African Company's bill appeared from planters and merchants of His Majesty's Caribbean Islands in America. Two petitions from planters of Barbados appeared on May 30th arguing against the bill. Both of these Barbadian petitions mourned the great duty that the bill would impose on the slave trade and contended that it would be prejudicial to the trade of the island and of England. There is a great deal of overlap in the wording of these petitions. They were almost certainly compiled by a single interest and then distributed around London to be signed. Unlike most of the Africa trade petitions, the signatories for these petitions survive. The Jamaican petition continued the involvement and leadership of Gilbert Hethcote, whose signature appears first. Thomas Byfield also signed as well as the large-scale sugar importer, Bartholomew graced you. The first of these anti-African company petitions from Barbados on May 30th was led by another litigant against the company, Sir William Booth, a plantation owner in Barbados and a former naval officer under Charles II. Militia Holder also signed point 14 a petition from the Chesapeake marks the first entry of a constituency that would be critical to the overall movement, the opponents of the African company who had interests in the mainland colonies but whom the company had done least to satisfy. The signatories were not all planters or residents of either Virginia or Maryland, despite describing themselves as such. Eleven of the eighteen signatories, Benjamin Brain, Edward Carleton, both John and Thomas Carey, Thomas Corbin, Isaac Milner, Christopher Morgan, John Munday, Mikaja Perry, John Sale, and Thomas Taylor, were tobacco merchants. Four of the signatories, John Corbin, Fred Jones, Benjamin Harrison, and Henry Hartwell, were permanent residents of Virginia, and the latter two were members of the Governor's Council in Virginia. 
Edward Chilton was not a permanent resident but lived in Virginia from 1682 to 1694, serving as Attorney General of the General Court, once back in England, policymakers viewed him as an expert on Virginian affairs. The Chesapeake lobby at this time, then, was first and foremost a Virginian interest combining London tobacco merchants with a handful of influential Virginia expatriates and resident planters. As with Edward Littleton, John Kerry had previous form as an anti-African company pamphleteer. Kerry authored the famous essay on the state of England, in relation to its trade in 1695 in which he advocated an open slave trade. He described the African trade as being of the most advantage to this kingdom of any we drive and went on to argue that to advise a government to monopolize, and consequently to lessen this trade, by confining it to a limited stock, is the same as to advise the people of Egypt to raise high banks to confine the river Nilus from overflowing, lest it should thereby fertilize their lands. Kerry was one of the largest tobacco importers in the 1690s. Similarly conspicuous in the list is Mikaja Perry, the linchpin of the British Atlantic tobacco business until the 1720s. So basically what happened, and I hope to, uh, hope to get this author on Majority Report at some point, actually. Um, what ends up happening is they get rid of the monopoly for North America, the English colonies, open that up to competition, uh, which ends up booming the number of slaves brought over uh, because the British fleet starts, it isn't just put out a commission by the independent traders, it instead gets what the Spaniards called the Asiento de Negros, which is the monopoly contract on providing the, the, their colonies with slaves. So win-win, pretty much, I guess, from a, a slave, um, a English slaver's perspective, both the, the monopoly gets broken up for the Americas, or the, or the uh, English colonies in the States, and, well, or what would become the States. And, but the British sort of state also gets to supply slaves for the Spaniards. Uh, and Makai Perry, uh, very central there. And again, just to remind who Makai Perry is, because I think he's almost as interesting as Bird. Makai Perry was the main exporter of tobacco from the colonies, from the Chesapeake, to the latter part of the 17th century into the 18th. And his son took over, and the, the Perry family was a dynasty that it later went into politics as it was dwindling out. But Perry was the financier for all these guys. So for when Lucy Bird, William's wife, Bird married her because of who her father was, governor in Antigua, who was later killed by uh, a revolt. But so Perry, this Perry family, he's not only he's the main exporter of tobacco, but also handpicking people to put on the governor's council. And so you see how important the commodity exportation business and the slave importation business. And Bird, of course, inherited from his father, who had the relationship with the Perry uh, finance, financial sort of exportation behemoth. We also saw in previous episodes how Bird's father played a key role in Bacon's Rebellion, which before and after we've seen in Divided Dominion and Edmund S. Morgan's work, 
that slave owning was more of a basically the people who owned African slaves prior to Bacon's Rebellion were people with ties to the governor's council. And then it opened up more to the sort of House of Burgesses and uh, and wider sort of uh, white property owners uh, that could own African slaves. And and then, of course, getting rid of the monopoly or moving it to the Spanish colonies and opening it up to William Byrd's friends accelerated the slave industry in, across the Atlantic. And, uh, okay, so we'll move on a little bit with the diary here. January 6th, he has a dis- starts a dispute with the governor over the uh, relation of something Bird said about the governor, basically saying nobody should be trusted with $20,000, 20,000 pounds. And the governor gets noted that this is about, of course, the Tuscarora War. And that weighs on Bird's mind sort of all January. And he asks people about it. He's talking to people about it. Um, constantly anxious. On the 31st, he, uh, he sort of comes out of nowhere and says, he's in a meeting in the co- with the council, again, that Makai Perry put him on. About 10 o'clock, our doorkeeper came to me and told me that the governor was going to the capital with the council. This made me get ready, and then I went to the capital, where I found the governor complaining that the House of Burgesses had passed several resolutions which made it plain they intended to spend their time only in dispute, and then he commanded Mr. Robinson, or Mr. Robertson, uh, to order the Speaker of the House to attend him, which they came and dissolved after a very short speech, and proposed how he should perform the treaty made with the Indians. This is a, a certain branch of the Tuscaroras <clears throat> that were more friendly, or, um, Weren't uh, weren't going to throw in with the uh, Tuscaroras that really wanted to fight. Everybody was silent for some time, and then I said, notwithstanding that there was no money in the hands belonging to the Queen. However, rather than either Her Majesty's interests or the country should suffer, I would advance 500 to pay the Indians with in case they perform the treaty. The governor took it, and rather because nobody seconded me. Uh, then we rose, and I went home with the governor in his coach to dine with him. I ate some boiled goose for dinner. Several of the Burgesses came after dinner to take leave of the governor, and about five o'clock I took my leave and went to the coffee house. Anyway, so he, he advised the uh, governor to finish the fort at Point Comfort and pay it out of the contingency charges, which seemed to agree to. So he comes through and says, he offers his own money um, to deal with something, uh... And then it puts him back on good terms with the governor. Um, kind of, you know, that's sort of, um, that's the sort of anxieties of these counselors, I guess. Like I said, I don't want to go too much into the, um, the repetitive stuff with the slave uh, treatment, but Redskin Peter forced to wear the bit um, on January 11th. Uh, there's some sh- guy comes to lobby about being uh a sheriff. Let's go with January 12th, actually. I was called away by one of the girls who told me that Mr. Peter Butts would speak with me. His business was to desire me to get a sheriff's place for his brother, and in order to persuade me to it, told me several things of Ned Goodrich. So he gossiping to get the sheriff's position. Uh, it's the interesting thing about, you know, I guess, the history of police in our country. Um, and how he had once uh, hindered my man Tony from paying... 30 pounds for lying with an Indian wife. So, not only 
is he gossiping or telling him gossip to say why we should, you know, his brother should be sheriff. The, look at what the gossip is. Um, he had once hindered my man Tony from paying 30 uh, pounds for lying with an Indian wife. A man came from New Kent concerning a protest bill and he stayed here all night. Anyway, so it's like, it's gets gossip about interracial couplings. Um, you know, freaks, right? I mean, the, the Kathleen Brown's book, uh, Good Wives, uh, Nasty Wenches, and Anxious Patriarchs, which we're going to play from when we uh, get into Shermer. These, this is what these guys are anxious about. It's really well named. And, you know, actually, that's what we'll get. Let's, let's go into that now, Kathleen Brown. Again, Good Wives, Nasty Wenches, and Anxious Patriarchs. This is an all-time great book. And this section is, this will kind of cover, you know, we've sort of speculated on if Bird was taking more liberties than just kisses, as he mentioned in this diary. Uh, Brown doesn't think so, but I think her sort of extra contextualization puts uh, Bird's, I guess, attitude towards sex in and its place in policy uh, into good context here. Bird's extramarital sexual activity during his 30s stood in stark contrast to both his descriptions of marital duty and the moral anecdotes of his commonplace book. During his first marriage, Bird occasionally tried to win the favors of other women. On one of his first trips to Williamsburg as a counselor, Bird sent for the wench to clean my room and when I came to the room I kissed her and felt her, for which God forgive me. Several days later, Bird kissed Mrs. Chiswell with excessive passion in front of his wife until she Chiswell was angry and my wife also was uneasy. After that incident, Bird confined his philandering to private encounters with women who were clearly his social inferiors, he tried unsuccessfully to entice a chambermaid to his room in Williamsburg, engaged in some group sport with a drunken Indian woman along with members of his militia, and kissed various women he and his male companions met during their visits to Williamsburg. There is no evidence during this early period of Bird's life, however, that he ever attempted to have a sexual relationship with any woman, black or white, who worked within his own household other than his wife Lucy Bird. With the death of Lucy Bird in 1716 while the couple was in London, this division between marital duty within his home and occasional philandering without changed completely. Bird began to visit prostitutes and initiated several longer affairs with white women who were not of his social rank. Often the sexual relationship accompanied an economic one. When Bird engaged a woman to wash his linens and provide him with meals, it seems to have been understood that she would also become his lover. One of his hired domestics, a servant named Annie Wilkinson, may even have accompanied him back to Virginia in 1719. It was during this period in London that Bird probably began collecting sayings about dirty slut s, venereal disease, and condoms, which he included in his commonplace book. On at least one occasion, Bird recorded that his male companions used condoms during a visit to a brothel. Meanwhile, Bird experienced several humiliating rejections while trying to find a new wife. When he finally met with success in 1724, he returned to Virginia, where he fathered several more children by his second wife, Maria Taylor. Sometime during the 1730s, as he wrote his histories of the dividing line, Bird began to construct a public persona of sexual self-restraint, perhaps as a shield for an increasingly secretive and illicit sexual life. Perhaps, too, he had become aware that changing English fashions had begun to favor men of sensibility over Ricks. When Bird resumed his secret diary after 15 years of marriage, he recorded sexual activities that were completely extramarital. As a man in his late 60s, Bird no longer reported giving his wife powerful or vigorous flourishes, he did, however, play the fool, have sexual relations, with several servant and enslaved women, 
some of whom appear to have lived at Westover. The pattern of Bird's sexual life during the 1730s and 1740s is that of an aging man seeking affirmation of his sexual prowess in relationships with women over whom he wielded considerable legal and economic power. Bird buoyed his flagging sense of his own virility by having sex with prostitutes and servants in London, and, during the final years of his life, with enslaved and servant women at Westover. No longer interested in the wars of Venus or lengthy pursuits, Bird sought women who found it difficult to reject him. Between 1739 and 1741, for instance, he recorded that he played the fool with Sally four times, committed folly with FRBY twice and Marjorie once, and also committed uncleanness. 34. Even as he approached the age of 70, Bird appears never to have been rejected by any female domestic save Annie, who had occasionally tried to refuse his advances when the two inhabited Westover together from 1719 to 1721. Male gentry power in this context consisted of ready access to African women who performed domestic and agricultural labor, a situation that bore some parallels to London, where laundresses, cooks, and housekeepers provided sexual services to secure their positions and earn additional income. Sex with African women, however, had other significance in a colonial slave society, as Bird himself had revealed in his commonplace book. White planters' sexual involvement with female slaves was simultaneously an expression of gender, racial, and class dominance in a society where manual labor, female identity, and dark skin signified subordinate status. I would just like to uh, flag... Uh the significance of this in the history of white supremacy that, uh, you know, not all were merely just discussed. Well, you'll see why I'm, I'm uh, stressing this in a little bit. Amid the anecdotes in his commonplace book about gender ambiguity and the dangers of being dominated by lusty women, Bird paused briefly to celebrate male virility, white racial supremacy, and, implicitly, the moral superiority of Virginia planters like himself. He recorded a story about a wicked West Indian, white, who boasted that he had washed the blackamoor white. In his youth, the West Indian claimed to have had an intrigue with an Ethiopian princess, by whom he had a daughter that was a mulatto. Her he lay with, believing no man had so good a right to gather the fruit as he who planted it. By this he had another daughter of the Portuguese complexion and when she came to be thirteen years old he begot issue female upon her body that was perfectly white and very honorably descended. Bird's salacious solution to the Elizabethan riddle of how to wash the black kumo or white implied that the power of slave-owning men might surpass even that of nature. The anecdote's appeal consisted of its play on white male anxieties about sexual and racial potence and its transgressive resolution of those fears. No longer an omnipotent force, nature, like the African woman in the tale, succumbed to the wiles of a morally dissolute colonial planter. Sexual virility and willingness to violate incest taboos enabled such men not only to outweet nature but to ensure their own racial dominance, effacing any trace of African parentage in their descendants. The West Indian in Bird's commonplace book thus expressed a power that was simultaneously sexual and racial, the consequences of which could be measured in a taxonomy of skin color. Although Bird's sexual behavior and attitudes were by no means typical of all Virginia gentlemen, there are several compelling reasons for reading his diary and commonplace book as part of mainstream male gentry culture in the colony. First, Bird was a member of the Royal Academy of Science, and his ideas about sexual anatomy were derived from the leading scientific thinkers of his day. Second, like many other Virginia gentlemen, including Robert Beverly, Bird was educated in London and, for a long period of his life, remained divided between his desire to be a part of its sophisticated urban culture and his loyalty to the colony of his birth. Third, Bird demonstrated throughout his life an ability to bond with other men on the basis of a shared culture of sexual innuendo, boasting, and misconduct. It is likely that the tales and anecdotes in his commonplace book would have found a receptive audience among his gentlemen peers. Bird frequently attended London brothels in the company of other gentlemen, moreover, although the presence of others occasionally shamed him into chastity. 
like many of his contemporaries, Bird used sexual discourses and sexual acts to communicate power over women and to construct a masculine persona. The ideology of woman's passionate nature that appeared in his writings allowed him to interpret his sexual prerogative with his wife as a duty. Outside the context of marriage, where Bird believed sexual activity to be illicit, Bird's affairs were shaped by power relations rooted in social and economic inequities. After buying or compelling sexual services from women in London, Bird easily made the transition to committing uncleanness with his servant woman and, in later years in Virginia, playing the fool with slave women. In the last years of his life, he expressed his sexuality mainly within the context of these skewed power relations. With his marital duties to his second wife fulfilled through the production of four children, Bird appears to have pursued sexual fulfillment almost exclusively with women who could make no claim to being his social equal. In his life and in the lives of an unknown number of planters, power and sex were mutually reinforcing, especially when they were played out on the bodies of female subordinates. I knew I had to include our uh, not friend, our enemy, uh, Michael Shermer, and uh, his bizarre com comments. Not bizarre, actually. I don't know why I call him that. Frankly, expected. Uh, frankly, downstream of the long lineage of white supremacy in this country. Uh, just unthinking, desirous of myth that uh, Michael Shermer hears, uh, which is ironic coming from Michael Shermer of Skeptic.com, uh, the Skeptic Society of Skeptic Magazine, with a woman named Mary Graybar, uh, who has uh, <laughs> uh, debunking this the 1619 Project book, which I wonder if she cites uh, Adolf Reed. I kind of doubt it, but anyway. She's not, she's actually uncomfortable with uh, Shermer here, but we're going to play a little bit of this Shermer clip. And because uh, Shermer wants to really believe that Jefferson was a nice guy. And uh, we'll break this down a little bit. Let's just take the scenario that um, that he did father a, a child with his slave, Sally. That's not granting much because that is absolute fact. Thomas Jefferson procreated with Sally Hemings. Uh, if I recall chronologically correctly, his wife had already died. Right, his wife died even before he was president. All right, so let's. So he wasn't uh, cheating on a white woman. Just put a charitable spin on it, because uh, by, by all accounts, he was a good guy. Mm. What if he's his wife dies? He's lonely. He falls in love with Sally Hemings, and they have a child together. Sally Hemings, of course, not like a woman down the street. His slave. Why is that not like a progressive thing? Like this is, you know, this was against the law. Right, and he's breaking the law because he watch watch Mary's reaction. Not like a progressive thing. Like this is you know this was against the law, right? And he's breaking the law. that is something else. Oh, right, and he's breaking the law. I mean, I don't like, know. Like this Mike. is you know this was against the law, right? And he's breaking the law because he loves this woman, and they have a child together. There's no birth control, or whatever. It just happens. So he he. Well, there was condoms, as, uh, as Shimmer would know, if he had any kind of curiosity. If he was interested in anything other than just believing George Washington and the cherry tree story. Um, again, just pathetic, sort of reactionary. And I should say, I don't know if I mentioned it up top, Shermer has been accused of sexual misconduct by multiple people. There's a BuzzFeed article on this that I'll link to in the show notes that uh, I was familiar before 
long before that situation happened with one of the accusers who's a, a science podcaster. And I'll just say, I find the accusations credible. And that's all I'll say about that. Uh, actually, I'll say a little bit more. I think it's very difficult not to wonder if a certain history of uh, your own that you're maybe running from would motivate a remarkably callous sort of motivated interpretation of history of a rapist, which again, that's what somebody who owns another person and has sex with them is. <laughs> you cannot consent if you're owned by that person. That There are severe consequences, in other words, right? He then takes care of her and the child and so on. Uh, why not elevate him even higher for this instead of calling him a rapist? You know, what do we know is, is in his mind? How do we know what kind of relationship? He, we don't. No one knows. So people are just... When people say Marxism is a science, David Griscom makes this point a lot. What they mean is you can be somewhat objective about property relations. This person is an owner. This person is a worker, or in Sally Hemmings' case, a slave. Uh, and those motivations and those that human bondage again, unless Schirmer has some novel argument for why you can consent under those conditions, which he you know, would know he would need if he was even remotely curious into these sorts of discussions. But instead, he thinks it's just coming from like, you know, 19-year-olds who don't want to give Jefferson a fair shake. And no, it's like any historian who discusses this. I mean, unless they're you know, published by wherever Mary Graber is published by, by, you know, some people only publishes hacks. Maybe that's unfair. I haven't looked, but I, mm. Just throwing these things out again as a calumny, as part of a larger ideological agenda that, that, that really bothers me because I admire him very much, Jefferson. Uh, and of course no one's perfect, but you know, judging people by today's standards and often standards that were established last week of what's right and wrong. Uh, you know, and just going back a few decades and, and condemning people for what they said or wrote, you know, in the 1950s or something. Or who they raped. It's just not, it's just inappropriate, I think, much less 200 and something years ago. And also one final note on this supposed progressivity is uh, if he meant this as some sort of progressive lesson, uh, he certainly didn't tell his children or anybody that uh, this is the lesson I want to be taken from it. I got this clip here. Here is uh, a selection, and not all these um, descendants of Jefferson, <clears throat> um, many of them have a lot more, uh, well, I won't want to say many of them. Some of them are much more enlightened about this issue than Michael Shermer himself, uh, and this is in 1999, so uh, 20 years ago. Um, and But a lot of them weren't. A lot of them did not say like oh yeah we're it's the progressive thing like if this was so progressive you'd expect the cookout for the jefferson and the hemings descendants to be this amazing interracial affair for 200 years right like it's been going on for a long time well it wasn't until dna science came around that uh you could force the white descendants of thomas jefferson to acknowledge uh what happened i'm just gonna play a little bit from this uh jefferson uh, um, uh, AP uh, story covering this DNA evidence. 
in Harlow, Truscott. But not everyone of Jefferson's descendants is as thrilled as the Hemings about the news from the DNA labs. Robert Gillespie is president of the Monticello Association, a group of 800 white descendants of Thomas and Martha Jefferson, and he is uneasy about bringing the Hemings family into the fold. We want them to tell us what additional information they can produce. We want the foundation to submit what historical information they can produce. We'd like to see if Dr. Foster and geneticists might be able to come up with more sophisticated DNA testing that can also give us more information. Yay! Not all the members agree. Lucy Yay! and Truscott IV won his battle to invite the Hemings to the reunion. Okay. This is their land. Just like it's your land. It's their land. And that graveyard is their graveyard just like it's mine. Just like it belongs to me. They're descendants of Thomas Jefferson. The Truscott is in a minority. The association is intensely proud of its tradition and regards it carefully. John Hubbard is a retired teacher whose father and son are buried here. Uh, well, I think the black uh, community and, um, doesn't have much of a heritage. Their heritage goes back uh, probably to about the Civil War and not much beyond that. I think that uh, it's very important to them that, to, uh, um, to establish this link that, because it gives them a heritage that otherwise isn't there. So that freak is just going to uh, psychoanalyze black people instead of uh, the folks that are just completely in denial <laughs> into the reality of the person that they've built a heritage around. Mm -hmm. But the reunion has also been a chance to bridge the gulf between races. Through the DNA testing, Julia and Shay Banks Young found out their cousins. But the reunion also brings mixed feelings. Shay's here to claim her heritage, but there's shame here too. I don't want to be buried here at Monticello. I, I have no desire. To me, that would be like coming back to the plantation, to the to 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 be in a place that uh, my my family was held in bondage and in slavery. However, I don't want someone telling me it is not my right to be buried here because I'm black when the only criteria is based on the fact of my lineage in relationship to Thomas Jefferson, which is one and the same as those who are allowed to be here. And that is not the last we will be discussing the Hemming story on Literary Hangover. So let's uh, move now through the rest of this year of the, f the final year of Bird's first diary here. February 2nd, we have uh, another deal with the Custis family for land and Negroes. February 3rd, he's computing the deal he took to assume the debts of uh, her, his father-in-law. This would leave him in debt for decades and decades. It was not a terribly great deal, but it the thing is, is when you're indebted to somebody like Micaiah Perry, he hooks you up. So it's not really that bad. It's like Brett Kavanaugh, really, really in debt. Well, that might make the people who pay your debts uh, happy to put you on the Supreme Court, for instance. Uh, same thing. Same, same thing. Um, the, again, the Carolina War is still going on. February 11th, he goes to see some pretty daughters. Uh, February 12th, he bought a Negro shoemaker. That's, I, I think that's a very interesting thing, the um, specification of the trade. Uh, I need some shoes made, so I'm going to buy a person to do that. Uh, you know, again, like this, the amount of skill and just the, the skill 
up and down the line of these sort this sort of work again no there's no such thing as unskilled labor is very very true and the amount of skill put a barrel together that like cooper's did incredible and you know he says i bought a negro shoemaker i should have done this early in the probably very first episode done a disclaimer uh and you know trigger warning about the word negro because i imagine it's probably unpleasant to hear over and over again I've, i've commented on it a few times i think but not never in any kind of depth there to historicize it but it is this is a time period where that term is gaining dominance and we're going to go back to Kathleen Brown, uh, Good Wives, Nasty Wenches, Anxious Patriarchs. Brown writes, As slavery became a more important form of labor in Virginia, eventually replacing indentured servitude, early constructions of racial difference provided the legal background for more blatant measures of legal and social discrimination between African and English women. Perpetual bondage for the children of enslaved women distinguishes these mothers from their English indentured counterparts after 1662. Christianity, which had long been a theme of English discussions of Africans, also became part of the legal discourse of slavery, race, and freedom, demarcating, quote, Negro peoples as a separate group from Christians by 1667. These legislative landmarks signified a continuing process of evaluation through which racial difference was expressed legally, incorporated into a new social order, and endowed with legal, economic, and social meaning. Rooted in planters' assumptions about English and African women's proper roles in the tobacco economy, early definitions of racial difference and the accompanying discriminatory practices resulted ultimately in a race-specific concept of womanhood. And I, again, would cannot recommend Kathleen Brown's work enough um, for these types of discussions. February 16th, he's talking with Captain Jefferson about mill advice again. You know, this is the milieu that Thomas Jefferson would come from a uh, just only a couple generations later um february 23rd uh he's reading paradise lost and i'll confess part of the reason that it's taken so long to get new episodes up is i've been getting really into john milton i I did a reread of paradise lost knowing john milton's role in the english civil war and uh there that will be future literary hangover content uh it will be in boone and paradise lost i'm looking much much forward to john milton uh maybe areopagitica um actually that's a really good idea let's go to march 2nd uh i rose seven o'clock and read a chapter in hebrew but no greek because mr grl was here and i wished to talk with him i ate boiled milk for breakfast and danced my dance I reprimanded him for drawing so many notes on me. However, I told him if he would let me know his debts, I would pay them, provided he would let a lotto of mine, that is his apprentice, come to work at Falling Creek the last two years of his service, which he agreed. Uh, I had a terrible quarrel with my wife concerning Jenny that I took away from her when she was beating her with the tongs. She lifted up her hand to strike me, but forbade but forbore to do it. She gave me abundance of bad words and endeavored to strengthen herself, but I believe in jest only. However, after acting a madwoman for a long time, she was passive again. So again, she's beaten Jenny. Jenny comes in for a lot of horrible physical abuse in this. So the following day, he gets some bad news about Marlborough again. He's uh, he's really a big fan of Marlborough. He was having dreams about uh, being preferred by uh, Marlborough, uh, who was the... Um, uh, Whig uh, leader of the army, but 
now the Tories are ascendant and it's not looking great for Marlboro. Uh, Marlboro, I should also say, is uh, ancestor of Winston Churchill. And Churchill wrote like a big fucking long biography of this guy. Um, March 7th, he's pissed that the overseer worked an ox in the rain. On the 9th, he's got an 80-year-old bricklayer coming around. Um, on the 12th, he's obsessed with a meat to preserve secret that this guy won't tell anybody, but he knows how to preserve meats really well. And uh, he's still reading Milton. <clears throat> Moving on to April, Tuscarora War Council stuff going on. The General Muster, that's a time where Bird can you know, stand in front of the troops and they can all look up to him as he's on his horse and be like, hey, you're really amazing, powerful guy. And he feels strong even though they're the soldiers and the ones presumably fighting or definitely fighting. April 15th, he meets Baron de Graffenray. Again, he's a major figure. He was leading the settlement that got attacked in the uh, Tuscarora War that set it off. Uh, you can check the previous episode sources for more on that. Um, the Indian prisoners escape that they had taken. <clears throat> May 6th, it looks like some prospect for peace. Uh, on the 8th, there's uh, another slave deal for eight young Negroes, writes. On the 11th, a Negro named Caesar... Uh, killed a hog and then ran away. And this is the, this is a thing. Like naming slaves Caesar is a a, th a thing plant uh, slave masters like to do. May twenty second, him and his wife fight over whipping again. Um, how they're beating the slaves. Uh, a lot of sloop activity. June, he's ill to start the month, but a lot of uh, whip usage later. And we'll do this like a weather report. Go to July 23rd. July 23rd, he writes, I wrote another letter and then went to visit the doctor and drank tea with him and his wife. Here I stayed till about 9 o'clock and then took leave of them and Mr. Bland and rode to the Queen's Creek where I found everybody well. Here I wrote several notes wherein I promised to give five pounds for each of my Negroes run away. Again, we see like the difficulty of... <laughs> of uh, you know, why slave patrols would become a very important thing because this is a regular preoccupation for these guys, as one would expect uh, of a, such a horrible institution. Um, let's talk of a granary. On September 23rd, he uh, muses about an Indian that supposedly has 20 wives. And that is another preoccupation of men, um, which probably would be true of cross-teachers if they had culture, uh, written culture of which guys are taking other women. I imagine like, like caribou would talk about the dominant caribou. It's like, hey, that guy's rotten with pretty much every woman. And uh, if none of us get our little you know, caribou asses and gear, there's we're just going to be babysitting this guy's kids. <clears throat> but um, it, it reminds me of also in the 1870s, the fascination with Mormons. I do just want to read the last... little entry 
September 29th. September 29th. F- f- whimsical little, like, ending to this diary. I rose about 7 o'clock and went again into the river against my ague. I read a chapter in Hebrew and some Greek in Lucian. I said my prayers and ate boiled milk for breakfast. I danced my dance. I continued very well, thank God. The weather was cold, the wind northeast. My wife was pretty well. About 11 o'clock, I was a little fevered and my head ached a little. However, I would not, however, I would not give way to it. I had not much stomach to dinner. However, I ate some broiled beef. Again, this is just like, oh, this guy... <laughs> Not, we're not working too hard. In the afternoon, I put several things in order in the library, and at night, Mr. Catesby came and told me he had seen a bear. I took Tom, uh, let's call him Larson, and went with a gun, and Mr. Catesby shot him. It was only a cub, and he sat on a tree to eat grapes. I was better with this diversion, and we were merry in the evening. I said my prayer and had good health, good thoughts, and good humor. Thank God Almighty. So yeah, like he shoots a little bear, and uh, who was just eating grapes. Apparently, mama bear not nearby. That could have been that would have been what I would have been concerned about. But killing a bear cub and being sort of like really thrilled by that. Like I mean, I'm not an anti-hunting person by any means. Uh, I probably hunt in the future. But um, the cub, you can't, you can't be happy about that. Eating grapes? Let that little guy eat some grapes. Let him grow big. Anyway, I think that'll do it for uh, this episode. Fine, I'm, cer- I'm certain a lot of you are happy not only just A, to get A episode out of me, um, but also uh, to be done with Bird. And we'll, we'll, we'll leave off Bird for a little bit. I, I will get to London Diary at some point, but... And I recognize the uh, the need to pull myself away. So, um, John Milton, Daniel Boone, maybe a little bit more John Bunyan. We'll see. Thanks, patrons, particularly. And if uh, if you want to uh, support the show while it's kind of limping along here, um, we will get back to full strength. I promise. Uh, patreon.com slash literary hangover thanks folks <laughs>